0: This is the Video Jumpyard Podcast. A place that appeals to your deepest and darkest fantasies. It's, a lion. it's, a lion. it's a lion. The dead whose haunted
1: souls hunt the living. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all part of Bubblegum.
2: From this nightmare world emerges a fearsome half-man, half-eight, with the strength of twenty demons. It's
0: time. And welcome back to another exciting episode of the Video Junk Air podcast. I'm Joe Peterson. With me, as always, my very good friend and co-host, Eric O'Branson. How's it going tonight, Eric? It's going. Glad to be here. Good. And tonight, we actually have a very special guest host as well, uh... Uh, another good friend of mine, Joe Fredrickson, Dr. Joe Fredrickson, who is the director of the Weiss Earth Science Museum uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Oshkosh, is going to be joining us for our conversation on this special film tonight. Welcome, Joe. How's it going? It's going great, but glad to be here. Good. Good. So, uh, I guess uh, things going okay, people keeping busy, or, I don't know, yeah. uh, mindless banter before we get into reviewing anything. <laughs> Well, busy as always. Um, mm-hmm. We,
2: I, My school is kind of getting started. I had to be on campus a couple of days this week to do some stuff and um, get checked off on some skills and everything. I, I, and for those who don't know, and for, for Joe, the guest Joe today, gonna <laughs> this is going to get confusing. <laughs> um, I, I'm starting uh, nursing school in like a week. So um, just starting to get everything ramped up. So I've been a little busy with that. Of course we still have the kids home they don't start school till next week and yeah so just good old juggling all that stuff for summer i'm uh, both dreading and looking forward to it at the same time i think school starting so
0: <laughs> i mean joe you've been pretty busy all summer because every time i've gone to the museum to visit there seem to be a lot of summer school tours coming through
1: all the children in the world come through in the summer <laughs> um, and the, the thing that's terrible about it, so I, for those who don't know, it's mm-hmm. I, I run a geology museum that's at the, the same university but a different campus than mm-hmm. Joe Peterson. So um, it's a small, about 5,000 square foot uh, museum, so we don't have a lot of room for people. So 50 kids is, might as well be 500 kids at that point. The problem mm-hmm. is these are all summer camps for kids who have already come earlier in the year. So immediately they show up and they're like, I've already been, I was just here. And it's like, well, I, you're going to listen to the same spiel that I have rehearsed in my mind because I'm not turning my brain on for this one. Um, so yeah, that's a, uh, that's pretty much what it's like uh, most days during the summer, but it's good. They're, they're fun. The kids a little bit more destructive in the summer, but, um, but they get by.
0: Well, and I mean, I, was it back in, was it November? Of last year that you guys opened up your new mineral exhibit.
1: Yeah, we opened uh, opened up a brand new mineral exhibit in the Barlow Gem and Mineral Hall, and that featured a lot of stuff that came out of the collection. I'm really glad that that's done with because trying to get an entire exhibit built and finished in like four months is uh, very that's very difficult. That's a lot. Yeah, it was it was quite a bit of work. In that, right? So now we got that, we're in that beautiful time where we have nothing being built and we can just sit back and relax and uh, watch for the next thing to fall apart. And then we have to scramble to make a new exhibit um, (laughs) sometime at the end of this year.
0: Well, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize, You, you know, people even that are common patrons of museums, is that setting up a new exhibit is not an easy task. And it's not one that happens all the time, which is, you know, a complaint I know people have with museums. I was just there last year. There's, I've seen everything. And, yeah, I mean, to some degree, to, even the Field Museum in Chicago, I have that problem with, like, their Evolving Planet exhibit is gorgeous. But I've seen it, like, a million yeah. times. I mean, once so, you walked
2: through it a few times, like, I yeah, – yeah.
1: yeah. Well, remember, though, the, the hard thing about designing a museum exhibit, you're designing it for everybody, so the one person who walks through goes through it, sees what they want to see. Suddenly, they feel like it's not for them anymore because they got what they wanted out of it. But I can guarantee they didn't read everything yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it takes a lot of a lot of work, a lot of skill to try to make something that is going to be engaging for the second and third and fourth visit. Um, and that's you yeah, know it takes a lot of practice and a lot of people who, who do this professionally. Um, we don't have that kind of budget, so they get what I write. Um, and that's what they <laughs> have to deal with. That's what people get every time they come. But we do actually have some really cool exhibits coming up. Um, one of them that we haven't announced yet, so this will be uh, the first time it's actually said publicly, um, is at the end of this year, we're going to close down our uh, gallery that has the Animals Through Time exhibit. And we're going to have uh, a new exhibit about changing uh, the change of dinosaur toys through the last century. So we have a collection Ooh, of cool. oh, hundreds cool. of dinosaur toys and memorabilia going back all the way to the 1920s. And we are going to set that up as like how have dinosaurs changed in our perception over the decades. And it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be sort of pop culture meets science. So I think something a lot of people are going to be able to appreciate It's going to have that nostalgia factor because there'll be a lot of Jurassic Park toys in there and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Flintstones <laughs> and whatnot. But um that's going to be fun but it's also going to be probably the hardest thing i've ever written because it's easy when it's just talking about fossils that's my background when i started having to talk about manufacturing and the tv industry and yeah, the entertainment stuff, industry yeah, and then stuff nice. that's so personal to people um you know you got to do it justice right you can't just you can't just write it off or think that's something that's not going to be important to someone so it don't, doesn't deserve its own text panel or something like that so Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind to look at that through someone else's eyes and remember what's important to them. Cause if it was me, you know, it'd be like 90% Jurassic park and the stuff that yeah. Yeah. that. I'd probably give one display case, but for a lot of people, that's, that's the most interesting thing. So spreading that out yeah. making sure everything gets, it's, uh, it's well, a, it's. I, I still
0: have all my old Jurassic park toys in a couple of boxes and <laughs> I've gotten things out over the years and my son plays with them a lot. And then when the Jurassic World films came out, he started acquiring toys from that. And I've been shocked to see that the original 93, 1993 Jurassic Park toys are so much more durable. <laughs> I mean, all of the Jurassic World stuff is just—it falls apart really easily.
1: There is a uh, a Velociraptor from the first one. It's yellow and orange, and it, if you squeeze, pull its legs back, it the screaming screams. one,
0: yeah. Yeah, um, my yep.
1: sister has mine from when I was a kid. And that was my favorite toy. I played with it every day. Probably made that thing scream a million times. It still works to this mm-hmm. day. She has it on her ah. bookshelf, and every time I go over to her house, I test it to see. Now it it's barely audible, but it still <laughs> works. But it still works. That's pretty amazing. Um, first of all, what yeah. kind of batteries are in that thing? Because we need those. Uh, you know, <laughs> in my current remote controls. Uh, but also, I mean, thirty years later of that thing and, and not being treated nicely, it it still it still holds up. So,
2: yeah, I parted ways with yeah. my that toy, exact toy, mm-hmm. probably about ten years ago. But it still screamed at the point when I got rid of it. So twenty years on, it was still working. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty good. That's I a good think track for record. The,
0: the big red T Rex that came out in that first Jurassic yeah. Park toy run, I think I've only had to change the nine volt battery in that twice in over 30 years or 30 years so that's something <laughs>
1: so i had that one got it for my birthday the year dress parking lot does does anyone else who have that Did the tail have a weird bend in it oh yeah okay that was just sort of everybody's thing because i well because
0: them. it was fit in the box ah, and they bend yeah. the tail to put it in. <laughs> yeah my it's like
1: whoever
2: designed the cardboard packaging like whoops well <laughs> i guess we'll just bend the tail to
0: fit it uh-huh. in there jam it in there I will say my favorite of the Jurassic Park toys was the juvenile Mm T-Rex. It was just, that was my favorite one. It looked, I think they they put a lot of detail into it. And then when I read the book and realized that, no, there's a juvenile T-Rex in the book and it actually is like Mm -hmm. kind of an important part of the book. I was disappointed that it's not the movie, but, and I don't think that's, it's not an accurate portrayal of now what I think a juvenile T-Rex would look like, but it's still probably my favorite one. Yeah. So. The uh, but, the Carnotaurus yeah. was really cool. The first gen
1: Diablo, the the black one, yeah, the, that one was really cool. The black and red one, yeah, that one was was one of my favorites.
0: I never had it, but always wanted it, and uh-huh. I st- just like a month ago, I randomly decided to check it out on eBay. Those things are going for hundreds of dollars, uh-huh.
2: yeah, out yeah. of the
0: package. So, yeah, the, there was I, I can see an exhibit like that being really impactful uh, i'm looking forward to, to seeing that and if, if there's anything you're looking for i i might have something let me know <laughs> but but uh well since we're talking about museum exhibits and and pop cultural stuff uh, kind of and we have a museum director here tonight uh it works out really uh very appropriate for the film that we're going to be discussing tonight which of course if you clicked on this you already know what we're talking about but just to play it off anyway We are going to be talking about the 1997 American monster horror film The Relic. Security, you were the last one to leave last night. Did you see or hear anything strange? Well, I thought I heard something as I was leaving, but it could have been anything. The
1: sweeping teams of two. Nobody goes in alone. This place is not going to open until every room is clear. I'll go. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Any idea about a weapon? Something big.
0: The board is hosting a gala preview here tomorrow night. It would be a disaster for us if we had to postpone. We may have somebody on our hands who makes Jeffrey Dahmer look like a Cub Scout. You have to let the gala go on. Something's wrong.
1: Come on, what's the matter with you? <laughs>
0: extinction of the human race so this was directed by uh peter hyams and it's based on the 1995 novel relic by douglas preston and lincoln child who went on to write couple of sequels to this um there's a character not in the movie but in the book that this kind of launched a whole book series about um stars penelope ann miller tom Sizemore, linda hunt and james whitmore uh tells the story of a detective and a biologist in the natural history museum trying to defeat a south american lizard-like monster uh which is on a killing spree so um What we usually do on this is, you know, what, so we'll start with you, Joe. What was your first viewing of this? Do you remember the first time you saw this one?
1: It would have been on VHS, rented from Blockbuster, Friday night. Um, I would have been uh, very young, uh, 10 years old probably at that time. So it wouldn't have been when it first came out, but definitely within the first year or two when it was out Mm -hmm. on video. And I remember watching it with my dad and my sister. And it didn't really strike me all that much. To be honest, I was sort of, meh. I thought it was kind of a meh movie. Um, I thought there was cool parts about it. they probably a little bit gory for someone my age to actually be watching. Now that I, see <laughs> I watch it as an adult, and I'm wondering why I got to see that. But um, it just, it, like I said, didn't really have an effect until I actually watched it. About five years ago, again, mm-hmm. and that's when it really hit me. About um, actually, that there's some pretty good stuff in this movie, and it's, it's mm-hmm. definitely worth a watch. So I would say it's my my second um, my revival towards it um, when I was born again into um, into the relic. That uh, I really started to appreciate it versus when I first saw it but as a kid, which you know it was a monster movie. I was more interested in the in the monster than anything else that was being said in it yeah yeah what about your
2: er? um similar story except that yeah i was uh i don't remember how i first came across the novel it was either recommended or handed to me by somebody or i found it at the library or something but um i don't even re- recall if i really if i even finished the book the novel's a big brick of a mm-hmm. book like it's you know probably 900 plus pages or something um and i was in junior high or something when it came out so uh i i know i at least read a good chunk of it and was familiar with what what it was about and when the movie when i heard it was being adapted then when the movie subsequently came out i don't think i like rushed out and saw it in theaters i think i was i probably saw it on video as well um but yeah i had a really similar um reaction to it i saw it and went well that was okay and then kind of just went on and just didn't really like leave a big uh and then rewatching it now I, I did remember some bits and pieces but um yeah i just kind of um it wasn't one that lasted left a real lasting impression the first time i saw it in probably 1998 or whenever it would have been
0: yeah i i actually remember seeing I, I remember when the book came out and there was some buzz about it um you know it was natural history museum with a monster running amok so it was something that popped up on my radar uh, but i didn't remember i don't i know i didn't run out to read the book but when the movie came out i was really excited for it uh, because it there were some at least at that point in, in 96 97 there were some some buzzword names that were attached to it notably stan winston yeah oh yeah and crash McCreary. like oh it's the creature design is crash macgregory and then you know all the the other stuff is, you know, Stan Winston. Okay, I'll go. From the the effects artist that brought you Jurassic Park, and right? That's how and they, they would sell everything. I, I think I finally yeah. said, okay, I'm done with this shit when the movie Komodo came out. And they were like, <laughs> From the producers of Jurassic Park. I'm like, that means nothing anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this was one of the films that kind of, I think, took me down that road of, eh, that doesn't mean much. Because, yeah, I had a similar influence. It's like, okay. And I think one of my biggest complaints, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this uh, here in a few minutes, but cool creature design that you can never fucking see yeah it's the, just so poorly lit i, I, I have a couple of,
2: to of this up. movie about not being able to see and that's just it's one of the darkest and not even theme wise it's just one of the darkest movies i've ever seen in my life and i'm not sure exactly why that is but it, it's very hard to see a lot of anything and unfortunately what seems to be from when you look at the design um concept the concept designs for this monster it seemed to be a really cool monster mm-hmm. that they just keep hidden away from from you and i got to the end of this movie again not really being able to kind of wrap my head around what the cathoga really looks like you know yeah well, we should probably yeah yeah jump into premise a little bit before we but yeah
0: yeah so the film opens with this anthropologist from okay so first of all the name of the museum in in the book, it's based on the American Museum of Natural History in New York, but they York, just call yeah. it the New York Museum, or the New York Natural History Museum or something. Yeah. And in the film, they they never specifically say it's the Field Museum, but it is obviously the Field Museum in Chicago. Yeah, yeah it's the Chicago Natural History Museum, that's okay. they call it, I which is not, that. you know,
2: obviously it's not the name of the museum, but, you know, A- and it's I, obviously the Field Museum. If you've ever been there or seen it, it it's, it's that museum. So. And I...
0: And it's it's a really lovely time capsule to like mid late 90s Field Museum because everything like in the background is the way that it was at that point. Yeah, Um, I do think it's absolutely hilarious that when they were when they were making this film, they were originally going to shoot it at the American Museum in New York, but the administration there read the screenplay and said no don't do this what's going to scare kids away and it's going to just it makes us look really bad because it does not make museum administration look good um yeah and they even offered him like a million dollars and they said no and so they went to the field museum and they went sure no problem <laughs> we'll just let you
2: and that essentially yeah. Field Museum thing to do. <laughs> it was the 90s. I don't think there was a whole lot going on for film production in Chicago, so to moved the whole production on location there in mm-hmm. Chicago it was like, yeah, come on, bring, you know, bring, bring Hollywood movies here. Yeah. And now
0: nowadays we see a lot more production going on there. But so John Whitney's an anthropologist at the Field Museum uh, or the Chicago Museum of Natural History. Uh, he's in South America. The movie opens up with him sitting with this tribe and he drinks this soup that's been given to him by the tribe. And he starts to have these bizarre freak-out hallucinations for some monster. Then it jumps to a cargo ship being docked, and he's upset because his crates aren't released. I He to wants honest, to get his crates back, I think, is the thing. He's yeah. trying to stop it. They're stuck in customs, him. yeah. Yeah. And then it cuts to six weeks later, which, again, in the book, it's like six years later. <laughs> Which is a big difference, um, and just happens there, a lot faster in this. A series. lot faster, <laughs> and there it, it, it's at the the port in Chicago and Lake Michigan, and there's a this ship that comes in, and everybody on board is dead. And so
2: it's like the Demeter scene from Dracula, like yeah, ship it really coming is. into the port, and
0: everybody's yeah murdered and mangled. And so then, then we're introduced to. Uh, uh, Penelope Ann Miller's character, Margot Green, who's an evolutionary biologist working at the museum, um, and she's fighting for grants, as we do.
2: Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like and, at least that yeah. there's a little slice of reality there, with the there, that being a pivotal thing with what in the plot.
1: <laughs> so that's something that, as I'm going to get into, I'm sure. About, Please do.
0: <laughs> there's so yeah.
1: much in the book, and there's actually so much that hits. So close to home as a museum professional, um, I can see that, and that I, I think that's what made this movie grow on me personally. Is that um, a lot of the decisions uh, uh, that were made on proceeding with this, you know, this event, this this big new opening of the superstition exhibit that we'll we'll talk about a little bit um mm-hmm. why they did that why they disregarded all the murders that were happening in the basement because every museum has murders happening in its basement I hate to tell people this but just be, just know <laughs> that that that's constantly happening in in these museums so um <laughs> we go forward with with these events anyways because we got to get donors that's how it works yeah right so yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a lot of stuff that was uh, that was pretty great I thought that you know that was an overarching theme in both the book and the movie was um uh with Margot's you know was Margot's lack of funding um in the book she's a phd student still in the movie she's already a she's a assistant curator or just a research uh postdoc or researcher um so but in both of those she's kind of on the fence about how uh whether she's going to be staying there or not because of money because of because of funding
0: yeah and that's that's very real i i had some questions in the book part like She's a PhD student at the museum, and the and somebody's a tenured curator at the museum. Like those don't that those terms are kind of being blended together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not there a
1: university. Some... It's
0: a yeah, it's a museum. I don't know of a lot. Are there museums that actually have people tenured in the same way? I don't. <laughs> think so i don't think that's a thing yeah <laughs> not, not, not. i mean i've heard of people getting their phd through a museum but it's in junction with a university mm-hmm. it's not just like the field museum doesn't give out phds yeah. so that was kind of like but um yeah so and, and just in the movie version um there's see, that's, this is where it was confusing me because maybe i shouldn't have been listening to the audiobook and watching them Movie.
2: That's often a mistake.
0: <laughs> uh, this this uh the murder the murder case thing. Um in the movie though, it's the the night one of the night guards is in the, the first yeah, the yeah, first he's one the to first get murder. It. Yeah, he he's in the bathroom smoking a J and yeah <laughs> gets pulled from under the door and yeah, Freddie Ford, I believe, is his name, mm-hmm. and the character's name. Yep. Uh, so that's what brings in um, the, unfortunately, recently deceased uh, uh, Tom Sizemore. Mm-hmm. You can yeah. see Tom Sizemore in a really cool role here. And he does a pretty good job as a disgruntled Chicago yeah. cop.
2: He does Tom Sizemore effectively yeah. in this movie, mm-hmm. like like he always usually does. He's, you know, serviceable. He, he's one of those guys that can play, like, a police detective. Just, mm-hmm. like, that's kind of what he is. I mean, he's not, but, he, yeah, just kind of, like, that's what he does. So,
1: yeah. yeah you can tell yeah. in the book. I mean, they, they added in the whole, like, he's way more superstitious in the movie to tie it into this, mm-hmm. uh, this new exhibit that they're building. But you can tell when they wrote the book, they were like, we want Dennis Franz. And then when they're like making the movie, they're like, <laughs> "We can't have Dennis Franz in, in this role. We need someone a, a little bit more attractive." Tom Sizemore, one step up. There you go. Um, but yeah, he played a really good role, I thought, as uh, um, You know, the disgruntled uh, uh, captain um, or lieutenant. It's just
2: right. like, who's just lost his dog in a divorce? Yeah. I believe it's yeah. Uh, yeah, custody I, of his I, dog. I,
0: I did think that, you know, adding that he's a superstitious type, you know, it's a bit of a trope, but it actually worked well, like you mentioned, because the museum is getting ready to unveil this new exhibit, and it's a big fundraiser, and it is all on superstitions. And so they're pulling in things from the collections. Um, Again, a thing people might not know about museums is the stuff on display is just like the showy, cool stuff. Not that there's not cool stuff in the collections, but the collections are much, much bigger. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, I thought
2: that was cool that yeah. it actually like we got a couple of scenes down in like the you know I don't know if those are really the collection rooms in in the field uh, or not but like something like that yeah. Okay.
1: They're if they're not they're really close. Uh, yeah that's yeah, yeah. Much and it probably it was since like
2: they got there. you know to to use the location.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think some of the some of the rooms were probably designed specifically for the film like on sets. I think the the formaldehyde storage. Mm-hmm collection i don't think field has one that looks like that uh i'm not sure if they have a mass maceration lab Mm -hmm. and if they do it probably does not look like that yeah um but yeah i think some of the other ones the offices i know were like yes those are labs those are really hit me that i've seen
1: those before so
0: yeah i've been into some of those yeah yeah. so that was kind of cool um so they, they do start, Margot and her mentor, uh, Albert Frock, who's played by, uh, was it James Whitney? James Whitmore. James, James Whitmore, excuse me. Yeah. Yep. Um, he, uh, yeah. They start looking through some of Whitney's crates that, got, that, that arrived, and you get the impression no one really likes Whitney.
1: He's an anthropologist. No one does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, my wife's yeah. an anthropologist. So,
2: <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of the tone everybody takes about it in the movie too, so that must be another realistic bit there. So <laughs> Oh
1: yeah. yeah. I think there's a, the, like yeah, that's... there's I mean the, the the one thing that they only they, they talk about just in a very small amount at the start about uh, Margot's distaste for having a supernatural exhibit because this is supposed to be a natural history museum that isn't about superstition, it's supposed to be about science. Uh-huh. And they talk about that a lot more in the book, but that is a real fight that happens between, uh, the different departments in, uh, uh, in museums, especially when you're talking about the edutainment versus education side of things and trying to draw people in with these over the top, um, you know, traveling exhibits or special exhibits that, um, maybe play a little bit more into, you know, into the extravagant and, that is something that is, is still, it was just as true back in the 90s as it is today, and we still see that in museums and fighting the P department. So another aspect of realism there that uh, I thought was pretty well,
0: well done. Well, when the, the murder happens, the first murder, and the police get involved, the, the first thing they say is, well, you know, we're trying to figure out who did this, so we need to maybe postpone the, mm-hmm. the, the, the gala opening up for, for the museum, or for this new exhibit. And it's met with a lot of a lot of pushback because they're using that as a fundraiser, mm-hmm. right? And that's pretty common, right? Like put together an exhibit to bring in people to pay for everything else.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're yeah. millions of dollars yeah. and uh, the press and all of that good stuff. It's, it's not easy to cancel that on a whim. In the book, it was something, I mean, it was in the order of, Days if not weeks between the the first murder when they actually had the gala, in the movie it was like the day before that it yeah, yeah So they really they really took that timeline and squashed it down, which I think makes a little bit more sense. If you have multiple murders over the course of a few weeks, you're probably more likely to cancel it than you are the night before. You're just like, hey, I think we fo- we found the person. I think we're good. Um, yeah,
2: this could be isolated. We've we've made an arrest. Let's go ahead with the event. Makes a little more sense, even though essentially the the management here um, ends up being you know the same char- the same character as the uh, mayor from Jaws making that call to mm-hmm. so go ahead and open the open the beaches, but yeah,
0: yeah, I, I even have it in my notes too. Like, could I actually see the staff from the Field Museum acting this way? Yes, but I'm not going to elaborate whether that's good. It's just, uh, yeah, I can see a. lot out of them acting that way because you know it i can see the pressure that's being put on them it's a little it's not that different it's it's pretty similar to to what we're you know like you mentioned with jaws um except there's it's not just like oh it's a shark it's like no there's there's somebody mutilating people at a building here so it's a little yeah a little bit different well the um
1: and the other thing about it is it's a distraction from the bad press of what just happened you have this thing that's opening up so maybe you use that as, oh, yeah, we took care of that. That was unfortunate. But look at all this this great stuff that's happening while you're here. So, you know, I could see that from a PR perspective of being like, yeah, we need to have this right now. Because the longer we don't talk about something else, the murder right. becomes the story.
0: Yeah, and there's actually a character um, from the book that isn't in. There's a couple of characters from mm-hmm. the book that are not in the movie that I think really helped the story along in the book. And one of them is the, the kind of staff reporter mm-hmm. for, uh, for, for the museum. Um, I'm blanking on his name, even though I'm, I just listened to that book today. Um, and he's kind of a jerk. Yeah. And He's writing a book about the museum and about all these new exhibits and stuff like that. And so this is, this is great for him. It's something, you know, salacious to, to write about, but that, that aspect missing from the film, it just kind of was like, Oh, you got a couple of museum directors here that really don't care about people's lives. Um, (laughs) again, not sure how accurate that is, but maybe possibly more than I want to admit.
1: (laughs) They toned down the evilness of the directors too, from the book to the movie, like the movie, like by the end, the directors were like, Oh man, we made, we made some mistakes here. Like this wasn't great. Uh, get everybody out now in the in in the book they're pretty much just out for themselves so it's uh yeah like i said it was fine and they had to cut out you had to cut out some of the fat in that in that case to make it an hour or an hour and a half hour 45 minutes yeah so yeah i
2: don't think it was really long real long yeah 110 minutes mm-hmm. so yep yep
1: and even that a lot so, happens in that in that time so
0: they really do they really do cram a lot um and the plot moves a lot faster in in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things, again, not just the shortened timeline, but just the kind of the events themselves. Uh, when Margo is then going through these crates that were sent back from Whitney, who has vanished, uh, she finds that they're just full of these big leaves that have some kind of stuff on them. And then she later finds this gigantic mutated beetle about the size of a football. Mm-hmm. Um, which I hate to admit but is a really crappy effect. It's like yeah. a really bad puppet. Yeah. <laughs>
2: it was the first sign that something is not right here with all the big names and like, you know, a, a talented competent director mm-hmm. and all these special effects artists and, you know, uh, people you know are, are are talented people, And then you see that and you're like, "Uh-oh, something's wrong here." <laughs> like yeah. this doesn't quite fit with. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a really hokey looking big bug which in a different movie could have been really greatly hilarious effect but in this movie it just didn't didn't seem to sit right yeah
0: yeah. and then for reasons I guess instead of saying wow that's a huge beetle she has its DNA run which you can just do by the way in like 10 minutes you can just throw a DNA sample into a machine (laughs) and push some buttons on the computer and it'll tell you every creature that it shares genetic information that's
2: not a the relic thing though that's kind of a science
0: that's a hollywood thing thing.
1: that was the extrapolator though that's the whole point of that the, the of the machine is the extrapolator to yeah to tell what not just what was in the dna but also what its common ancestor would have looked like from all of these things they didn't get into any of that in uh-huh. the in the actual movie no but they didn't keep the name of the extrapolator on the machine so it was supposed to be canon with the with the book there <laughs> which is supposed to, yeah which is mm-hmm. like basically a more advanced supercomputer than what we even have today um in far genetics labs but yeah it's we're not gonna sit there for and have them wait a month for the results to come back on, you know, sequencing two genes from that whole thing back in what they could do back in 1997.
2: <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah it's, I mean, there's it's, just a bunch of
2: to display. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it's a plot convenience to make things, you know, work and add some some suspense and, and make make the movie work because everybody would be dead and eaten by this monster before they got any real results from. Uh, so. <laughs> but the
1: yeah. the. The computer and that technology is, you know, it was ahead of its time. Like, from, you know, what they were saying it could do is something that we're still striving for. But we, we will be able to do something that quickly. Um, you know, it's, in a sense, it's uh, it's made that big of a leap in the 20-some years of, since that movie. So, I don't think it's the most yeah. ridiculous piece of uh, science fiction that we've seen. The explanations behind no. Why these things are getting to become monsters is is, is far more ridiculous. That's than, much larger, <laughs> yeah, um, than just a computer that could run, that can sequence a, a genome in you know a matter of minutes.
0: Yeah, because essentially she she gets the printout and finds out that it's yes, of course it's insect, but it also has reptilian like gecko DNA, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. Meanwhile, they're doing the autopsy of the security guard and find that his hypothalamus was extracted from his brain. Yep. So something is yeah. eating brains. I do, I do think it's
2: funny how, and I don't know if this is a an an actor, you know, people just not quite doing enough research on, on their characters or mm-hmm. what their characters are supposed to know and talk about, but you couldn't get a group of people talking about the hypothalamus of a human brain and convince me more that they have no idea what that is, <laughs> than than the group with like everybody in this, like just like the conversation. They're they're almost like comedic to the point every, where every time so, someone says
0: hypothalamus <laughs> and they look shocked. <laughs> the, hypo, the hypothalamus. Well, <laughs> I'm just waiting for the next line to be, What the fuck is that?
1: <laughs> yeah, you can exactly. also tell that they these actors rehearsed saying that so many times so they didn't mis- mispronounce it that uh, it struggles yeah. to come out of their mouth every single time. Yep. Which it would.
2: Yeah. yeah. Don't let me mess up the, the hypothalamus the line. Hypothalamus.
0: <laughs> they hit the hippopotamus <laughs> 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 All in one sitting. Um, so the hypothalamus and i'm saying no no back cut you can't oh i i know i already have a whole bunch of (laughs) side notes about students that have mispronounced fossil names my favorite is the coral fossil coral uh hexagonaria is always mispronounced hexagonaria (laughs) (laughs) every single time i just go Uh, with it i'm like sure yeah but uh so yeah, as, as they discover about the hypothalamus that's been extracted, um, and I again, uh, one of the things in the book, too, is that there's a couple of murders before they start figuring some of this stuff out, and which is good, because, you know, good story, it kind of shows that there's a pattern emerging. Mm-hmm. In this mm-hmm. case, it's one dead guy, and they're like, oh my god, there's something going on here, somebody removed the hypothalamus, must be a serial killer, I'm like, yeah, it's one so far.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: uh, they draw then, an
2: awful lot of conclusions based on that one murder, yeah. but...
0: There, there is a a uh, a scene too in the museum basement where the police are, you know, going through like the catacombs of the museum, these tunnels, and they're looking for this creature, and they find a homeless guy and just blow him away.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and yep, they like hear that, a noise and turn around and just like, yeah, he like unloads a magazine on this homeless guy. So
0: and and the fact that that is not. A huge turning point in the movie. It's just like, oh well. Anyway, and, and there's just some throwaway dialogue in the next scene as they're like zipping up the body bag. They're like, ah, he's a registered sex offender. You know, he's a serial rapist. He was a piece of shit, <laughs> Like they yeah. just totally. Well, ride they're off. also like they
2: they are I mean, and it, and it does kind of expound on it being like not the best police work, but they're gonna they're pitting that like this is their guy. He's yeah. the guy that you know ate all the brains of the people on the on the ship, and like yeah. you know he's hiding in the in the basement without a whole lot of evidence of this being the case or it even sounding likely, even, even in this scenario. But yeah, cause he's a, you know, a registered sex offender with some, um, uh, then he's, obviously oh, mean, he's, we got our guy, let's have the gala essentially is, <laughs>
0: uh, where that goes. Right. And luckily, um, D'Agosta, you know, he, he's not convinced that this is, you know, yeah, he, he, he doesn't think it's, uh, This really—he understands this isn't necessarily having everything to do with all the with with the murder. I guess you have murders on the ship too, Um, Mm -hmm. but he kind of gets forced by the mayor and head of security to let the museum gala opening proceed.
2: Yeah, the mayor Uh, even makes a a shitty, passive-aggressive phone call to him, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, talking about his wife's cleavage and all this.
0: Yeah. Um, let's see for for more reference to that see the the movie yeah Yeah. and then we have the meanwhile by the way you haven't seen the creature so this is really leaning into Jaws even more with the like you know show less but even in Jaws we would get glimpses of a fin you get some
2: POV here and you get like um, you know screaming faces and yeah yeah. you don't get much of anything else until like at least three quarters of the way through yeah
0: yeah, it's, it's definitely a slow burn when it comes to the monster reveal. But uh, so the, they go ahead with the exhibit opening and it's this big fundraiser. You know, they do the whole red carpet thing. Um, the museum is on lockdown. Like there's a lot of security. There's cops again in the tunnels and they're looking around. They've got dogs. And we have a scene where the dogs get off their leashes and they go chasing after the thing. And you never see it, but you see it's like a bloody dog thrown back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, finally, we see the the creature, the Cathoga. In the movie, the Cathoga. In the book, it's something. And boom, and boom yeah. um is the you tribe. You see it... yeah, right. In the book, the Cathoga is the tribe itself. Uh, I guess they just found that easier just to go with here. There's but... a,
1: a lot of examples where they seem like they're simplifying things as far as being able to say them or yeah. Or just simply making it in, uh, an easier name. For example, like Lee. In the 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 other yeah uh, biologist, that's the competition for Margo. Like seems to Lee in the book.
0: Um, no,
1: but it's. Uh, I mean,
0: he's a, he's a total piece of shit. Like that character is a total asshole.
1: <laughs> well, it gets worse when you get to the the epilogue. So just be be aware that. It's, oh, great. It really gets it really gets the point of, of being straight up evil, uh, and is what causes the second and possibly other books. I don't
0: at least the second oh, one. Is I power. mean, I don't. I, I will say I am enjoying the book enough where I might continue with the series, but uh, yeah, I'm
2: here to talk about it. I'm actually like maybe I should revisit this because it, like I said, my my memory of it is almost is practically not even memory at this point. But
0: yeah, um, yeah, the 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 character of Greg Lee is yeah he's a total asshole. He it's I like the the Wikipedia pages, an ambitious museum scientist trying to apply for the same research grant away from Margot. Yeah, and that is a That's huge a, dick move mm-hmm. when you it's already like have that. like a you have full funding for your project and you know another researcher is going up for a grant to fund their research and you apply for the same grant just to double your money. That is a huge dick move.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, it, Unfortunately, I think that those those moments in the movie are going to end up being this movie's strengths. It's kind of the realism of of <laughs> academia the and the, yeah, and the, yeah and the, the management of the museum, the situations. Uh, because as a monster movie, unfortunately, I, I think it kind of falls short a little bit as you were as you were starting to talk about. But yeah,
0: yeah, because we just don't see much yet and it's around this time that like the the opening is just getting started that Mm -hmm. it's a cutscene to like this sewer type room Mm -hmm. underneath the museum and it's super dark and real shadowy and you see the creature the cathoga actually wake up and like oh i'm gonna go out and hunt now Mm -hmm. but you can't really see it It, it's so dark it's just mostly a silhouette And, and as i said before like the whole
2: movie is so dark like everything going on and it's almost like they got every, like, like, yeah, we got the Field Museum, fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's this, this classic building, this, you know, old, you know, wonderful natural history museum, which it is. Um, they get on location, like, holy shit, we have no idea how to light this place. Like, yeah. even in the big, like, main hall of the Field Museum, they cannot get enough light on actors. It is, like, dark in there during the gala. It is dark during everything. It's dark in the offices. I I don't know if maybe they could pull enough power or the light, the like the lines were not, you know, whatever. I don't know if it, it doesn't seem, it seems so extreme that I highly doubt that it was a creative choice. Like I think this is something that they just had to roll with because it was the best they could do. I, I <laughs>
1: like think it's so.
2: it's that bad. It's
1: like the orange blood in Dawn of the Dead. I
0: mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Museums are just, dark. I, I, that's Light's bad for a lot of those things, so museums yeah. are generally kept without direct lighting on specimens, so almost every single museum you go into is is a dark place, especially at night, uh, mm-hmm. so I, I wouldn't be surprised if this was a limitation related to filming on, on site, but it also you know, isn't unrealistic that it would be that dark in a lot of these places, yeah. especially an older museum down in the catacombs. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and that, they didn't even get into a lot of the stuff with the book where they're cutting power and there's a giant storm outside, and you know they only lose power for that one, the, the one scene near the end, um, which is a very good scene when everything completely goes goes
0: wrong. Oh my God! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. when so the Cathoga goes out, he he kills one of the dogs, and I think it's even before it really shows up. They start the the lockdown thing because they're getting weird, you know, reports from all the security, mm-hmm. and they start the lockdown, and they the power gets killed. The cathode cuts the power. I assume it, it's kind of a very smart monster. Um, <laughs>
1: they explain why that is. They explain yeah. why, yeah. yeah. So that makes cool. sense. That
0: does. So it kills the power in the whole place. So all these people in their tuxedos and dresses are, you know, the sprinkler system has gone off, and the museum's on lockdown, and it. The, they just start running over each other and yeah. running around screaming. It, it totally looks like one of the black and white scenarios of an infomercial. Where, <laughs> you know, it's like, do you hate straining pasta? People are like, shit! And they it yeah, it's just everybody so running around. Like that. Yeah. yeah, it was a little over the <laughs> top.
1: Yeah, I think it yeah. was. I think it was spurred by there was a body that was dropped onto that, yeah, cases. one of the cops or and something, then yeah. the uh the the alarms went off and the security protocols was cut in and the big doors fell down
0: and yeah and then with the the in. sprinklers mm-hmm. people are slipping all over everything because it's marble floors yeah. so <laughs> yeah
2: Uh, Yeah. And honestly, some of those moments and it just the the tone's not exactly consistent throughout the movie, but some of those moments are actually a lot of fun, especially the body dropping and some of the over, uh you know, just the, the, basically the the rush out of the museum and that whole scenario, um, it it, it generally is a, is a cool scenario and and it's a fun part of the movie. Again, my my main thing is that it just, like, I want to see more monster, and, like, sometimes when we're down in those catacombs, when they start sending people down after the monster or or the the group of people that decide to uh, go through the tunnels to cross the street and exit the museum that way, uh, the scenes in the tunnels are so dark that at times it it actually hurts your comprehension of what's Mm -hmm. happening. Like, Mm -hmm. I I think it, yeah, it's that bad.
0: And and I know that some films will intentionally do that to try to you know give this impression of being disoriented, but mm-hmm. usually when a film does that well, they kind of commit to it, and yeah. this is sort of random. That's why yeah, I could see them like, trying to make something out of it, but yeah,
2: I don't know. That's why I feel like this is not intentional, is because it, yeah. it actually hurts the your ability to un- understand mm-hmm. what's going on. um yeah, it, it, it's, to, it's totally fine to have dark, dark scenes and movies to set, you know, the, the, the tone and, and, and set some realism to. But when you have a you're, you as the viewer can't actually follow the action because it's, you know, and I often wondered if maybe it's a transfer thing, like if, if somebody went back to the negative and actually like cleaned this movie up and, and could restore it, if they could maybe push that a little brighter and we could we could get a version of the relic that's a little easier to see. Um, I'm not sure because of the fact that this goes on to not be an incredibly successful movie that we're ever right. going to get that kind of treatment, but I think maybe it's possible that you could see that in the future. Yeah. If somebody out there loves it enough.
1: I would, <laughs> I would love to see uh, like a, basically a fan redo of the movie where they touch that up and then basically just redo the, the CGI on it because I really don't mind the practical effects, but the last five minutes of the movie is pretty hard to watch. Oh god. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Well and I, was... I'm
2: right there with you. Yeah, I, I really think the practical effects, at least I think they look really cool when you can mm-hmm. see them. I, I'm really happy with them. The CGI is 100 nineteen ninety seven CGI. Yeah. It's just like really rough. Well, I, can, things... I can see Spawn fighting
0: this thing.
1: So <laughs> so before we get into that, I mean this is when you see the monster. Yeah. So this is when you see the Cathoga and it is a Lion mixed with a giant reptilian creature with bug-like appendages on its face. Does that mm-hmm. pretty much? Yeah. Ex- it explain that
0: And almost a primate-like face, but with teeth like an anglerfish. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's a wild-looking yep, you know. creature. Um, not a bad design overall. Um, no, it's scary. not at all. No,
2: it's it's really cool. I love the and I. I think there's some concept art out there that if you want to get a good look at what they had envisioned, Mm -hmm. it's a very cool monster. I wish we,
0: I wish we could have gotten more of this. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, they, so, you know, we're first introduced then to the the creature itself and yeah, it's, it's, it's scary looking. I mean, it would, it'd be a terrifying thing to see in a dark museum. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And because of the way it kind of like borrows DNA
2: and then develops, you know, all these different types of, of creatures in one and the way they blended that together into what they got is, I think design
0: wise, it was a success. I just wish that you could actually see it in the movie. <laughs> yeah. There's a few shots where they do a close-up on, on the animatronic cause they did do animatronics and puppetry mm-hmm. in this. And, and for the Cthulhu, it's really good. It's just the lighting. It's hard to see it, but when you do get those glimpses, it's pretty cool. Uh, it, it, it has these large, uh, pincers on the front, you know, similar to what you'd see on a on a spider uh, with these mandibles, and it actually uses those to decapitate. Uh, so you see a few scenes of it grabbing people and literally snipping their heads off. You also yeah, find I, out that it can climb walls like a gecko. Um, there's some it, just really outlandish yeah. but cool stuff that you start seeing this thing doing. And
2: Joe Joe F earlier, you uh,
0: you mentioned that. Um,
2: it being quite a gory movie, it it was much more violent than I remember it being. Mm-hmm. Like when I watched it, and I was probably a teenager when I watched it the first time. Which um, so I don't think I would have been like greatly affected by it necessarily. But uh, I was surprised at the level of violence, even um, or, or like gore effects and stuff that were in it. Like it, yeah, that thing was like using the, the its pincers to like pop just kind of pop the heads off of people left and right there mm-hmm. for a while. So
1: the severed head budget. Must have been like half the the effects because everyone got their head popped off at some point in that movie.
2: Well, and there's a pretty graphics that the autopsy scene with when they start having the hypothalamus conversation for the first time, they're kind of poking around and that guy's like hollowed out head and it's, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really shy away from, from all of that stuff. So for a kind of mainstream, regular R-rated film, it's, it's, you
0: know, it's got some
2: moments, but yeah.
0: I, speaking of the autopsy scene, I just want to mention briefly that Dr. Zvezek, the the uh, yeah. medical examiner, is played by... It was the last film of Audra Lind, Lindley, uh, who is Helen Roper on Three's Company.
2: So, uh,
0: just wanted to throw that out there. I she, was, quite possibly, was my favorite character in this entire movie. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, yeah that's,
1: that's a fantastic one-off scene for a character.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and and it, it's a little different than from the book, but even in the book, the autopsy scene is really fun. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's it's got you the know? same the same level of like dark humor in it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we finally get to see the Cathoga and now that we've seen the monster, and they got their five minute genetic sequencing done, they're figuring out what's going on with this. Creature, essentially uh the the leaves because when they open up one of those crates all they find are these big leaves mm-hmm. and then they, they figure out whatever artifact was being stuffed with the leaves go for protection has been taken but actually no the leaves were what were being sent back because they're covered in this virus odd fungus or it's a, vi- a fungus with a virus you know, yeah. they really cram like every concept of biology and paleontology <laughs> um yeah. and that the fungus must have mutated something And that thing would normally need the leaves to survive, but it can't. So it goes for the next closest substitute, which is the human hypothalamus. (laughs) Bit of a stretch, but okay.
2: Gives it a reason to rip a lot of people's heads off
1: like that? Yeah. Well, Uh, and it's... It's explained, like I said in the book, a little bit more about this idea that, you know, kind of the superstition about where this monster comes from. But the tribe using this essentially as a way to banish their enemies and keep people away from their their plateau that they live on. And, you know, and that uh, this this monster they could kind of control as long as they they had the leaves. But the government after the expedition found gold on the mountain and napalmed it. So there is no more leaves. So this was the last of the food source for this creature. So that's why it was so dead set on on uh, finding that, that those boxes and getting to them. But they were locked up in storage, or they were just in the movie. They were incinerated. Besides the mm-hmm. small, the one leaf that uh, Margot kept, because um, you know, as any good scientist would, we break all the rules to to figure out what's in what's in the box that was brought oh I, I
0: can't tell you how many bags I have in my lab and in my office that are just rock samples from a place I went to like yeah someday I'm going to get around to like you know doing XRF on that no I won't <laughs> but I've got boxes of bags of rocks just golf ball sized chunks that's not uncommon You, you no, oh no. yeah there's some shit before me let me take a sample mm-hmm. for reasons you know it's part of being a scientist is being a pack rat. it just kind of goes with the territory <laughs> Um, so that's accurate but yeah and I think the original idea with the kathoga is that the, the tribe would use it by they'd feed it the leaves and then they could kill it off by pretty much keeping the leaves from it it would die of starvation because it wouldn't get yeah the, the pro whatever it needed they said they would
1: create this thing they would hide it would kill off all the enemies and then it would die from not yeah. having this yeah
2: then they'd yeah withhold the food essentially or from it, it would die. So they they kinda like pointed at something, mm-hmm. you know, like oh, yeah. here's this giant monster, we're gonna point it at our enemies and hope that it doesn't also eat us. Like that's kind of <laughs> like Pumpkin Head.
0: Yeah. I actually yeah, that's a pretty good <laughs> kinda like Pumpkinhead. You just you, you summon this creature and then you aim it and you just pray.
1: One aspect of the Koga that's kinda makes it even more scary is that it's basically like a drug addict going into withdrawals too like so that makes it extremely ornery and motivated um beyond what it normally would be which it sounds like when it's not uh in that phase it might be somewhat controllable um and somewhat reasonable and that kind of goes back to the the intelligence of this thing
0: God damn it. Now I can never watch this movie again without without thinking, you know, this is legit. A really good anti-drug metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> or at least, uh, you know, offering some sympathy to people with addiction issues. Fucking hell. Thanks, Joe. Shit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> my grades going up now, <laughs> but uh, they also then start. God, I'm, I'm kind of following through my notes on this too. Like, yeah, like they go back down in the tunnels and they're trying to hide from it. And it, it the third act just kind of falls into this people running in different directions and the cathoga just starts killing people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just kind of aimless, dark,
2: running through tunnels, yeah. running through, yeah, running around the museum.
1: And yeah. the tunnel scene, you could tell, was one of these situations where they're trying to take everything from the book and... Funnel it into this movie as much as possible because the tunnels become a really important part of the book mm-hmm. because they talk so much about how impenetrable the museum is, and the only way to get out is through the sub basement. And when all the doors are locked, they don't talk to people about that at anyway in the in this movie. In fact, they're in a room that has a giant skylight that, you know, if the SWAT team would have just shot down into it and not tried to, uh, you know, repel down into the monster's <laughs> yeah. mouth. They might have just been able to climb out or um, find a, yeah. know, another exit. So um, it just seemed somewhat unnecessary to add those in there because they wanted another dark scene of claustrophobia rather than just taking it to yeah, you know, then taking it to the back rooms to the collections and ending it.
0: Yeah, because they try like, oh, well, it's part reptilian, so it's cold-blooded. So if we spray it with nit- liquid nitrogen, that'll stop it, and it doesn't.
1: So here's a little side fact: yep. You spray anything with liquid nitrogen, it'll stop it. It doesn't matter if it's cold-blooded or not. Um, <laughs> you, throw, you you spray enough liquid nitrogen on, on a warm-blooded animal, it'll probably kill it too. So,
0: yeah, the key is how much. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they don't use nearly enough to do anything but make a cool-looking dry ice. Set. But that's, <laughs> there's
1: one thing in that in that scene that they they do that should have been probably a larger portion is when they figured out. Oh, this, it wants this leaf, is using it as a, as a draw mm-hmm. to, uh, tr- to try to get the monster away from all the other people and lure it into a place where they could finally kill it. And that's, you know, I think that's the one important part of that scene that gets underplayed uh, yeah. by their failed attempt to kill mm-hmm. it right then and there is that they had actually had a fairly good plan because they kind of understood everything that they needed to know about the biology of this animal.
0: Well, and speaking of that, they get the final bit of information because the computer does its—you know—the microwave goes ding, and now they've got their result. And they find out that there's also human DNA in it, revealing that John Whitney isn't missing. He is the Cathoga. That when he drank that soup in the beginning, it slowly started muting. So that's how they make a Cathoga: is they take, yeah. uh, you know, a person, they they feed them the fungus in a soup form, and then they pretty much—I don't know—it's like it. It's a combination of Earl Grey and CRISPR, and it just creates, <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, that if you drink this, you'll just mutate into this hodgepodge chimera of animal things. Yeah. Which leads me to wonder, is every cathoga the same? Like, do they all look the same, or is it different features? Like... I actually kind of like
2: to imagine that they're all kind of different, depending on the situation or what they're exposed to, cool. but...
1: Like yeah, I mean, it sounds like with the the rapid pace of evolution that this can take, and all the epigenetics involved, that all it would take is some other animal wandering past this plant for it to uptake some DNA, and suddenly you got a whole new whole new creature when it's mixed in with the human, or you feed it to a dog or something like that. and mean, suddenly got something completely different. So, well,
0: kind of like in the Alien franchise, yeah. right? Like the the chest bursters, whatever they're in, they come out. They're kind of like that. Mm-hmm. There's, at least they showed an Alien Three. Yeah. You know, they you can have like the dog alien yeah. or whatever. Uh and then later we, the predator, predator alien. We do entertain the option that then there could be like
2: a cathoga that is like part like cocker spaniel and sloth and panda and not, you know, something that like <laughs> that just kinda of sits around
0: and um you know, just just it, <laughs> it slowly chews on people's skulls <laughs> to get behind well, you. <laughs> like <bamboo>. the hydrophalamus like
1: a The Cathoga. <laughs> is the son of the devil that they never really explain how they got about this or whatever but the tribe believed that they made a bad deal with the devil and they got cursed by having its son and they kept that in the movie as being like that was the that's the lore they told about it so we have to assume that they're all going to be eating people at some point or doing something right so they're inherently Uh, evil in some way, so even if it's a sloth, it's going to be like that new sloth or House movie where it's just gonna be
0: killing people, so yeah, and that
2: they do do that, they do they do pay some service to that in the movie, um, because that's what kind of ties into the whole superstition bit, yeah, of the, the you know exhibit that they're opening, and yeah, son of the devil,
0: and and I think that is a cool connection that they're showing. And again, going back to what you said earlier, Joe, about how this is a thing museums deal with a lot between the, the, the edutainment versus education. Yeah. And one of the things I, I know a lot of museums have exhibit, natural history museums, um, culture museums, have exhibits about the beliefs of certain peoples mm-hmm. and how important that is to their culture. So I I could totally see a superstition exhibit being really cool, actually. You yeah. know, like the origins of some of these things. And this is another one, and it kind of is a, a silly but kind of a cool way of showing the origins of certain superstitions and customs being, you know, having a, not just a culture, but a biological basis, mm-hmm. because there's a, a thing that they, it's much more in detail in the book, but it is mentioned in the movie is that Margot's mentor, um, frock or James Whitmore yeah. mm-hmm. is, is, he's essentially a, a paleo biologist. Yeah. Um, and He's known for having this kind of fringe theory that instead of evolution being tiny little steps through time of of changes Mm -hmm. in populations, that there are these aberrant forms that appear and can cause extinctions by being like a perfect predator. And it's almost a play on a real biological concept known as the hopeful monster. Yeah, Which is not... its environment Mm -hmm. and it it's short-lived but it's really easy to identify because they're just so goddamn weird but they're they're hyper specialized to a very specific thing so they're going to be very very unique there's never been anything that i've read about about how you know things like the tully monster the illinois state fossil caused extinctions or anything like that yet (laughs) i haven't read that yet um but that was kind of I, I have a soft spot in my heart for movies that totally bring out some batshit science, but there's just enough whispers of, of fact to them where it's like, okay, I, I know where you're getting the jargon from and okay, I'll play along. It's, it's outlandish, but it's, it's really honestly no different than we're going to clone dinosaurs from DNA. We extracted from Amber. Yeah. You I mean, know, it's, there's uh... a lot of stuff that just doesn't work with that, but it's unique enough where I'm like, okay, let's see what you got. And this is one of them. It's kind of a cool idea. There's no basis for it, but it's a cool. idea.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, at some point, like we talked about suspension of disbelief, like it is science fiction. You gotta throw it, yeah. throw it a bone. I don't think that this does anything egregious with the, what the, but it's kind of pseudoscience or it's story that, um, you know, a lot of other science fiction films, especially monster movies don't do as well. Like, I mean, even Jurassic no. Park surely isn't scientifically. Oh,
0: no, <laughs> exactly. That's my point. And if anything, I mean, it's it's still promoting that, yes, evolution is a thing. And it happens. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, sometimes it can do some weird shit. Yeah. You know, um, there's been debates going back decades now about the rate and mode of evolution, you know, like what we call things like phyletic gradualism or punctuated equilibrium, which are these two different schools of thought on how evolution actually works at what kind of rate, right? And this is clearly something that if, if somebody brought this up at a conference, it would be laughed at. Mm-hmm. But outside of that academic circle, it's a neat thought experiment, if you know, I guess. So I, I kind of like the idea of this this fungus that just absorbs DNA and creates these really weird things, and that cultures have based their religion around that. Mm-hmm. That aspect of a culture basing beliefs over something really odd that's happening in the ecosystem that that culture lives in—that's totally realistic. Yeah, I mean that's a mm-hmm. that's. All of us have, have some aspect of that. It just doesn't involve cathogas. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or not, but... Well. Yeah. So once they figure out all of that, now we have the big climax where the cathogas is smashing into the lab because the liquid nitrogen didn't work, and apparently just pissed it off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it corners Margot. Which, did, did we ever establish if she knew him, knew Whitney? Mm. She certainly has an impression about him. Like, she must have known him
2: well enough to know she didn't like him very much. Okay.
1: She, yeah, I mean, she has that weird scene at the end where she's like, I know who you, I know what you are, or I know who you are, and like, it...
0: And it starts licking her?
1: Yeah, I don't know if it took, if it it's taken aback by that or something, but it buys her a second of time to get on an elevator.
0: So. Yeah. It's a really odd scene. And I, I, I don't think there was any thing about like that. They had a thing beforehand. I don't remember no, anything no, like that. They, they don't so when, when she's like, I know who you really are. And it just starts licking her with this long reptilian forked tongue. It's, mm-hmm. It's a really weird scene that doesn't seem to fit, <laughs> but yeah, it uh, and yeah, she jumps into the elevator. But first, you know, it, it has smashed its way through all of the formaldehyde stuff, yeah. so now it's covered in all this flammable liquid, and so it gets lit on fire. In as you were pointing out, Joe, probably one of the worst last five yeah. minutes of a film as far as computer animation. Yeah, fire cathoga is something.
1: <laughs> but the the idea though about how they kill it in the movies. Great. Um, I mean, that's a serious problem in museums is, is this huge amount of flammable stuff that we have for preservatives that we're constantly being warned about. Not really does she do that, but she makes a bomb in the process of being chased by this thing. Like she's putting together whatever explosive that she ends up throwing. Um, which I think is pretty cool. That's a pretty badass way to, um, to kill a monster. Yeah. Uh, much better than, than the way they do it in the book. Um, which is not anywhere near as, as climactic or as fun or uses anything related to um, the museum's infrastructure. My biggest problem with that that scene, besides the CGI, is how they get rid of D'Agusta, where they're just like, you lock yourself in here, I'll be on this side, and then all of a sudden it just pops in through a window. <laughs> um, yeah. And he's just on, it's like, okay, well now it's them too. he's on the other side. But... The other thing that bothered about me is the scene right before that where he hands her the bullet, the lucky bullet that he talks about earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. And you're giving up to this idea that this bullet has come in. I mean, this is Chekhov's gun, right? Right now that we're getting like, we got this bullet. Yeah. He gives us his yep. backstory about it. He hands it to her. This bullet is going to be used in some way. No, it it doesn't get used at all. It just, it comes back later that she hands it back to him or something
0: like that. Um it, it helps her by being a, a good luck charm. Oh. Yeah, a lucky like said, bullet it been again. it would cooler if she yeah. would
1: have, like, used the bullet to ignite the... <laughs> Shoot the
0: damn thing, yeah. Well,
1: I mean, she could have just used it to, like, set off the fire or something like that. Like, there's a lot of ways yeah. you could do it. It just seemed like it was a lot of build-up for something that turned out to be relatively that been a... yeah. But, thinking about this a little deeper, it's superstition. And what is superstition overall? Useless. So, uh, yeah, there you go. So it's bringing it all back that it's, um, yeah, it really works so well. It's, it just gives her enough luck, like a baseball players, you know, not changing their socks that they feel confident enough that she could outrun a flaming Tathoga and get into that, um, you know, that water chamber cleansing, uh, unit before.
0: Oh God. She gets into the maceration tank,
1: Yeah, which
0: I, I, been around those things they are you do not want to be in one of those I mean you also don't want to be in a fire chase by a fire monster either a monster on fire but I don't like know they That's... recently
1: changed out the water in that so I think she was oh, she was pretty clean when she came out
0: yeah I, 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 I'm on a head cannon that like they got done you know macerating a rhino or something and then they yeah. changed the water out yeah. waiting for the next thing she, but...
2: didn't, she wasn't covered in yeah. No, yeah, those are
0: pretty gross, though. So, I'd imagine but, they get kind of, yeah. Yeah, but the, the I I can't let go about how terrible the CGI fire cathogo was. I remember even in theaters seeing this going, holy shit, that looks terrible. And that was in 96 or 97. It, it looked really bad then, too. Exactly. Because yeah. essentially all they did was, instead of having the hair textures or anything it's just here's the model and let's just cover it in an animated fire skin mm-hmm. and it yeah looks, it was god awful
2: it was bad and i know we've complained about some movies from around this time before but this was one of the the worst examples i think the the fire monster at the end was just yeah yeah
1: it was and it was unnecessary it was it was one of those things where you're like this is ambitious she's gonna be chased by this fire monster it's gonna be awesome it didn't work in post production. Just make it so that you edit it so that the uh, the maceration chamber is like twenty feet closer to the where it's going to explode, and she jumps right into it and explodes. Like, just yeah, get rid of that we don't scene. Need all it the other, you could have done that weird. with simple editing, and it would have been just as exciting.
2: Uh, yeah, it's ambitious to try something like that, but it's also the wisdom that says, "Oh, that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Let's just yeah, let's just cut that." Yeah, I guess it's 100% it's... unnecessary to the plot of the movie. Like, it doesn't have to yeah. be there.
1: The explosion, when the Cathoga actually explodes, not just on <laughs> fire, but the very last scene, it literally blows up as a secondary explosion to the fire in the background. Yeah. Which is not necessary either. Um,
0: it's got a belly full of hypothalamy. <laughs>
1: yeah, just which of course are no to be highly flammable. We know as are the hand words. grenades of the brain. So yeah,
0: yeah know. but yeah, I that's a good point. They should have just looked at the dailies from that one and went, yeah, "No, you know, we we have to edit yeah, this like, out." It's all the
2: fire monster things not working.
0: Yeah, I guess it's something to know. You know, this film being you know from the the mid to late nineties, it's now twenty twenty three. And we still have movies that are coming out where we were wondering, did nobody check the effects before they mm-hmm. released this? Like the flash, you know, oh, the CGI is really bad in some scenes. Um, yeah. I thought we'd be past this by now, but I guess so. I feel like
2: we've actually reached a second point in like the in film history where mm-hmm. people just like, I think people don't really care as long as it gets done at this point. Like, mm-hmm. we, yeah. we, we achieved concept. It doesn't really matter if everything looks perfect, and and I think that's the wrong way to go yeah. with those oh, yeah. things.
0: Yeah. Uh, and what really shocks me, too, at the end of this is, okay, so they blow up the Cthulhu, she gets out of the maceration tank, you know, Dagasta and the police come in, and that's it. Just end. It just ends. Yep.
1: Straight up ends. Yep. Credits
0: roll. Just boom. As a
2: good old, that, that's a very like end of an 80s movie ending, mm-hmm. like the end of the action and boom, there's your credits, you're, you're gone. There's no wrap up. No, we don't really, we don't see
0: the characters all get, you know, get back together and give each other a hug or anything like they, like in some movies. Yeah, yeah at least no, they didn't have, you know, Penelope and Miller and Tom Sizemore making out for no reason at the end. You know? Oh God. Yeah. I, I actually enjoyed that about this, that there was no
1: romantic subplot here. Like, he specifically tells her that he's not looking for a date. When he's yeah. trying to chase her down yeah. through the exhibits, and he's, and he's like, I'm not looking to date you here. Um, like, that was great. <laughs> he's already, he's, he's, uh, he's worried about his dog right now. He has more important things on his mind, so. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was refreshing. And, the, yeah, the disappointing thing about that is if it would have been a success, they didn't give us the, the typical monster movie, you know, where are the babies? Where's part two? Where's the leftover? Which the book yeah.
0: does. Yeah. The
1: book gives you what's next a hint of that
0: mm-hmm.
1: um but yeah there's not a, a something has survived kind of um a peak didn't area. even give us a little
2: bit of the the stuff on the leaves you know like left over yeah. somewhere anything some creepy
0: fly you know or some shit who knows but all right i mean it, i will say for a movie that you know came out in 1997 it passing the the you know the the Bechdel test, which wasn't even really a thing talked about at the time, is kind of impressive. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have really cool characters in here. You know, uh, women in in this film, and at no time are they really going into romantic discussions about a guy.
2: There is zero of that in this. There's movie. zero, which it's, is which is for 1997 pretty pretty forward thinking. <laughs> I think,
0: like, yeah. It's, yeah, so yeah. you know they got Tom Sizemore to sit the fuck down and <laughs> not hit on everybody. Yeah, mm-hmm. and... when well, you have
2: Penelope Ann Miller and Linda Hunt as as featured female characters. I mean, mm-hmm. Penelope Ann Miller much more than Linda Hunt, but she's yeah. she's she plays a role for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's there is nothing. There's not. They don't even go as far as insinuating um, a former romance between uh, Margot and and. Uh, what's his name, the Cthulhu the guy, <laughs> um, John but, Whitney.
0: Yeah. Whitney, yeah, which I was, again, kind of waiting for that, and with the tongue thing, I was like, is there some kind of suggestion? Yeah, that, you know, it's just, he's, a, he's just kind of a dick, and you now he's a monster, he's kind of a dick. So, yeah, so I think so,
2: that, that one thing makes this fairly unique among its type of movies, so that there's none of that, there's no, yeah, yeah. Romantic subplot. There's no damsel in distress kind of stuff either. Like, I don't think Tom, Tom Sizemore is ever is ever set up as like the 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 hero character that needs to go and rescue margo from from situations. They're 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 pretty much played as equals um, throughout this. So
1: yeah, the only time well, he tries at the very there, end there was, he fails miserably. Sorry, so. I said the only time he tries to be uh, the hero is at the end when he locks her in into the into the lab and then that fails miserably anyway. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I completely agree. There's a, uh, multiple situations here where they have curators, museum director, you know, the autopsy head who are all women in, in this role that I could easily see in the nineties, given that to those roles to men. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, it, you know, I think that is a pretty progressive, um, uh, casting for the movie, which is, is fairly great
0: yeah yeah absolutely um there was one other thing i noticed and it's probably nothing but i have to wonder if it's a nod from the authors but so the the character in this who turns into a you know transforms into a chimera-like creature is, is john whitney mm-hmm. in the book it's julian whittlesey, whittlesey yeah yep and as we do on the podcast is find some connection to shit from Lovecraft. In Dunwich Horror, you have Wilbur Waddlesley, who slowly transforms into a chimera-like creature. <laughs> and I have to wonder if the name is a little bit of a play on that. It wouldn't surprise me by the authors, but, you know, yeah. they change it for the movie to make it sound better, which they did a lot and still do a lot for mm-hmm. stuff like this. But I just had to wonder, like, I wonder if there's a connection there with the inspiration, like we're going to do a, you know, a nod to this Seems rather specific to have, you know, oh, here's a character that slowly transforms into a monster of various forms. Yeah. And He's, we're going to have a comparable name.
2: I'd be surprised if, you know, a, a couple of authors working on a book about a, a monster, especially like kind of an otherworldly monster formed from all these, you know, different DNAs and um, are not aware of Lovecraft and and his contributions to literature. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some,
0: (laughs) and even some of the themes of this film could, I mean, it's a stretch a bit, but it could almost fall into a bit of Lovecraftian, you know, it's, it's the unknown science and some body horror and and some, some common themes that we don't about from his works and other adaptations from his stuff. And his stuff has been adapted into so many weird stretches of the imagination. Anyway, this, Kind of feels like it's at home there intentionally or not,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, but and uh, yeah, I, I also liked that on the Wikipedia page, it also um, references the film Altered States, which, yeah, kind of see some similarities yes. there too. In theme, yeah, I see some, yeah. you know, so uh, overall, the film didn't do that great, right? It got pretty mediocre to poor reviews when it came out, and I think it's probably because they just tried to cram too much into one short, rather, rather short film, really. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, and they did a lot of the packing, a lot of stuff in, you get, you get a lot of like um, scientific techno babble that like gets you into this plot and you, and it doesn't really pay off for anything. Like you, you don't actually get to see a lot of the, the cool monster, you don't get to um, kind of experience that in the end. Like if you could, if you could fix some of those things about the movie and I'm not saying, you know, so that you go back and actually like change it, but even if you could just like, you know, bump up the, you know, I'm going to go back to the lighting thing just cause it bugged me so much, but yeah, just get a, get a little better exposure here. And so we can see what's going on. I think that would improve things greatly, but yeah, I think it's about a lack of payoff for all of that. I, I think the, the, the first half of the film actually works pretty well. And I was impressed with some of the things we talked about, um, you know, it's, it's nature, especially when it was made being, um, I don't know if I'd call it progressive, but like definitely, you know, uncharacteristic of the nineties and, and there being some, (laughs) apart from some of the like laughable delivery of some Mm -hmm. of the scientific, uh, uh, stuff in it, like, it's not entirely, um, ridiculous for a science fiction movie. Like, I think it's had an interesting premise. It just, uh, Yeah, at the end it doesn't deliver the goods and I think that kills a movie like this. So,
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I was going to actually ask Joe if you have any final thoughts and a grade for Relic. Well,
1: so one thing I really like about this movie and I think this is one of those aspects that we where we're labeling it as simply a monster movie and that's what it was sold as, that's what it ultimately is, but there is more to it that is going on especially if you dig into the supernatural exhibit versus science this internal debate that was going on about this exhibit that was being built which is ultimately what the movie and the book is about this supernatural being that is ultimately desperately trying to be explained by the scientists in there in order to actually address what it is and figure out that it's actually something biological not supernatural and it can be killed in a very scientific or you know natural way so I think there's a lot of aspects to this that would make a very good mini miniseries and expand this out to six hours rather than an hour and a half. But the shortness of it, um, the bad CGI, uh, definitely the the lighting aspects and some of the corny dialogue, I think you, there's no way that you can give this an A grade. All right. So um, on my scale, if I was going to go with obviously as a as someone who works in university we'll give it a we'll give it a letter grade i would give it a b minus and i think that's being very generous but it's like i said speaks to someone who's in my position it speaks to someone who is scientifically minded and i think it's a lot of really cool ideas in a very very neat setting if you like museums watch it simply because it's a time capsule of what the field museum looked like in 1997. And that would be enough reason to see it.
0: Cool. What do you think, Eric? Um,
2: I'm not, I, I want to like reiterate that I enjoyed almost everything that you, you pointed out as your perks of the movie. Like that's absolutely what I think were the strengths of the movie too. I think it's got a unique setting. It uses the location of the museum brilliantly. I think it, uh, it actually, and, and I don't, I don't. You I mean you know much better than me with the fact that you appreciate it, it. Makes me believe that maybe it does have some, some kind of legitimacy with its, its exploration of politics inside of the museum or the scientific kind of aspect of, of that. And, and I enjoy all of that stuff about it. Um, I do think where it fails is, is, is bringing that all together. Mm-hmm. Like it does have a really cool, like I, I, I picked up on the, the, the science superstition, kind of the, the, that that's the battle that's going on with mm-hmm. the, you know, the crux of the actual story. I just don't think it really, even on that front doesn't deliver in the end because it, it gets concerned with other things like, you know, CGI fire monster and all these like, <laughs> you know, kind of things it's trying to do being a late nineties thriller. And, and you're still within like this kind of like, we're still feeling the the reverberation of Jurassic Park and I think they kind of jump on some of those tropes as well in fact i I didn't bring up those one of the things that I wrote down about this that like there are some scenes that are like kind of cut and paste right out of Jurassic Park like some security uh, computer mm-hmm. Um, displays that like the, that, that look like the paddock layouts. I mean, they're just like doing the same kind of thing with like, let's oh, lock yeah. down this section of the museum and let's open these gates. And just reminds me of, you know, those scenes mm-hmm. from Jurassic Park. So, so there, you could definitely feel that reverberation of them trying to latch onto that, um, that movie still, and then recreate some of that. Um, so I really like those aspects about it. Pretty much everything you, you said, I, I, I a hundred percent agree with you that those were the strengths. However, I feel like it's weaknesses do kind of like, you know, pull it, pull it down a little further for me. I really want to see that monster more because it's really a cool design. I was just kind of like, as we were talking, Googling some of the, the, um, Stan Winston, um, models that Mm -hmm. they made of it that you can see in full light. And it's just such a cool monster. And you don't really get an idea of it from actually watching the movie, which is disappointing. Um, so yeah, at the end of the day, I think I, I think I'm gonna land at like a C minus for this. It's not totally unwatchable. I, I think it I think it's got has its merits, but um some of the technical aspects, technical failures, like you know, just it being really hard to see. And I feel like that's something that maybe with technology now they, they could mm-hmm. fix if somebody wanted to spend the time to do so. Um and also just the underuse, the, the, the Jaws effect to the nth degree, like this the underuse of their monster, I think is is sad. Kind of heartbreaking in a way because it's
0: such a cool design. But yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. I think I'm actually going to be falling pretty much in the middle there. Mm -hmm. Um, It, it was more enjoyable on this watch than previously. Um, And, and as I've mentioned on here before, you know, there's movies I've seen a million times, but when you sit down to watch it because you know, you're going to be talking about it and kind of reviewing it, you start noticing things a little bit differently This was one where even the first time I saw it in theaters, I was like, this is so damn dark. I want, I mean, I'm here to see a creature. I'm here to see a monster. That's what they sold me on the monster movie. And I know it looks cool. I just can't see it that well. Uh, So that was, that is something that still bothers me about it is I get that they're, they're probably limited or to some degree they're going for this kind of dark, shadowy Mm -hmm. thing. But if you're going to, have all the time and effort put into creating this big giant. I think it, I think it ended up being like 15 feet long, the model they made on set. I want to see that thing moving around. Mm -hmm. Um, The, as I mentioned before too, I I have a soft spot in my heart for the, the kind of techno babble, you know, pseudo scientific sci-fi movies, but they take that extra effort to just have a couple of things kind of accurate that, Shows that they put in some effort. Mm -hmm. I like that. And this definitely does it. Performances are actually pretty good again for kind of a Saturday matinee monster movie. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think, uh, I, I, some of, some of the older, uh, performers in this, uh, like Linda hunt and James Whitmore are actually really quite good. Mm -hmm. Uh, their, their, their roles are, are really good. And yeah, Sizemore plays Sizemore. Uh, so overall, the characters are kind of fun. They're they're caricatures, but even caricatures are based on some reality. Mm-hmm. So you know, yeah, yeah, it's it's fairly accurate in that in that instance. I want to say this is a smart monster movie because I know that the book is much smarter, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they yeah. condense this down so much uh, that it it actually detracts from what could have been done. I totally agree. This should have been or today, if they were to redo this, they should make it a series, like a limited series, or hell, there's a whole bunch of the other Pentagrass books they could keep going with it. So I'm actually going to end with a C-plus on this one. It's it's not unwatchable. Uh, if if you like the, the, monster, the, the Saturday matinee-style monster movies, you could do a lot worse, and at least this one does have some kind of cool concepts, even though they're like the Cliff Note version of what the point of the book was trying mm-hmm. to go into. Uh, so... I I do have to agree with um, one of the reviews, which was, I think, from uh, Richard Harrington of the Washington Post said, quote, it's a familiar story in the horror film business. Good novel, terrible adaptation, just as Stephen King and Clive Barker. Uh, As written by Preston and Child, the relic deserves to be taken off the shelf. As adapted by the screenwriter and director Peter Haynes, it should have been left on one. That's pretty harsh, but... Mm -hmm. I can see their point. So, uh, yeah. but that is that is our review of the nineteen ninety. I keep saying six and seven interchangeably. Nineteen ninety seven. I think uh, it's official, yeah, yeah. A monster horror film, The Relic, and we would love to hear any of our listeners' questions, comments, criticisms, or witticisms about this film and/or the book, or anything else you feel like talking about. We'll we'll give it a read. Why not? If you write it, we'll read it. Uh, please feel free to send any of those to the video Junkier podcast at gmail.com. If we, if you still use Twitter and if we still had a Twitter account, it would have been video at video junk pod, uh, which it's not anymore, uh, but also on the Facebook page uh, and Instagram page for main video Junkier podcast. We look forward to uh, hearing from you.
2: And if Twitter was even called Twitter anymore, right? Oh That's shit.
0: The... It's X now. Yeah. Which yeah, yeah. Weird. <laughs> Ridiculous. There's
2: a reason we don't have, we're not using it anymore. Um, yeah, I hope you'll come back and join us for more reviews on the video Junkyard podcast. Uh, next week, we're going to do our our official send off to comedian actor Paul Rubens, who recently passed away, and we're going to be watching his uh, his masterpiece, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And uh, after that, uh, the Schwarzenegger devito comedy twins. Uh, we're going to be watching Star Chaser, the Legend Legend of Orin, uh, and many good things uh, beyond that. Also, go back and uh, feel free to go back and peruse our over two hundred. Um, episodes that we've already done maybe we've already watched and discussed your favorite guilty pleasure and if not let us know what it is and we'll make sure we do it in the near future
0: and we want to thank you once again for listening and uh joe i want to thank you tremendously for for coming on tonight and staying up with us to talk about this uh, it's been a lot of fun having you on here yeah uh, thanks you. joe i've had fun revisiting this one so yeah thank you so until next time this is the video Junker podcast i'm joe peterson i'm Miracle branson Have a good evening.
2: You have been listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast. I do wish we could
0: chat longer, but I'm having an old friend.
2: You just can't let them go?
0: Go. Stay on the road. Keep
2: clear to the moors. We want to take this opportunity to thank you for listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast and remind you to find us on social media on Facebook at Facebook.com/slash Video Junkyard Podcast, on Twitter at Video Junk Pod, and on Instagram as Video Junkyard Podcast. All one word. Want to thank you again for listening and keep digging. Who knows what treasures you'll find in the Video Junkyard.